Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour Voice Remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox Voice Remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome today. Live by Live has all of your favorite music, and you can listen for free. Whether you hit play on one of our hundreds of curated music stations or create your own custom artist radio station, you'll find the music you love on Live by Live. Visit LiveXLive.com or search LiveXLive in the App Store or Google Play and listen for free now. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. We're going to talk about race in America and race in sports in a minute. First, a word about my new Patreon account. Hey there, guys. I wanted to tell you about something new. I've launched a Patreon account, patreon.com slash Andrew Brandt. People have asked about getting more content, more insight, more information from me, and now that's available through various tiers. If you're able to join on patreon.com, you can get shout outs from me. You can get the Business of Sports podcast transcripts. You can get Ask Andrew questions, weekly newsletters, all kinds of ways to interact with me, including a monthly conversation about whatever you want to talk about, jobs in the sports industry, breaking into sports. It's all available now on patreon.com, Andrew Brandt. If you're able, please join, select your tier, and be able to have further content and interaction with me. Patreon.com slash Andrew Brandt. I hope you join. Hope you sign up for one of the levels on our Patreon account. Uh, Try to share more access with you, give you more content. Have more engagement, and that's a way to do that through Patreon. Appreciate any support. Thanks so much, and hope you enjoy the added level of content that I can give you there. Sign up on Patreon when you can. This week, we're going to get into race and race in sports. It's something that is obviously taking hold of this country. It's what we're all talking about now. It has pushed this pandemic that has claimed 110,000 lives and 40 million jobs to the back page It is so much in the news what happened since George Floyd's uh, being suffocated a couple weeks ago. I wanted to find the right guest to talk about. I know I talked about it last week just myself, but I have the right guest. It's Howard Bryant from ESPN, the author of Full Dissident, the author of many books talking about race in America, specifically with a sports bent. You may hear him on ESPN, on NPR. Again, insightful, thoughtful, no hot takes giving sort of real insights that I found fascinating. Things that I didn't know, things that I can't really comment on. uh, And we really get into it and get into some hard questions about America, about what makes this moment different, about whether it will last. And of course, getting into the Kaepernick situation, which he and I talked about on this podcast on the failed workout back in November. So I want you to enjoy this, my conversation on race, race in America, race in sports, and this moment where we're seeing that African Americans are treated as less than. And now my conversation with ESPN's Howard Bryant. Howard, 
you know, always good to have you. You're a voice that I want on during times like this. And it's hard to describe what exactly times like this means. But before we hit the record button, you and I were just talking about, uh, I'll let you express it best because you did say it in a way that really made me think like this issue is always around. It's now, now people are noticing. You said something to that effect. Yeah, it's been really interesting, Andrew, that I swear on Monday, I was convinced that I had fallen down the stairs, wound up in a coma, woke up, and nobody told me. And the reason is because I got up that, that day, and all of a sudden I had a, just a mountain. You know those days of news you get when all of a sudden you wake up and you see all these text messages from everybody around the country? Yeah. And all these people were asking me if I was okay. And I was like, what happened? And each one was sort of the same message with a different sort of tone. Here for you, just want you to know if you need anything, I'm right here. And I'm reading this message, and I'm like, what happened? Did something happen? So I hop on the news. I'm sitting to look at the New York Times website, and I'm looking at the LA Times in Philly. I'm looking around at the papers going, did something happen that I'm not aware of? And it turns out it was all the George Floyd stuff. It was the, it was the protests and such. And I mm-hmm. thought that was bizarre because it it tapped into something from my white friends that Sandra Bland didn't tap into and that Ferguson didn't seem to tap into and that Tamir Rice didn't tap into or Alton Sterling. But this one caught their attention. This one seemed to matter in a way that resonated. And who knows why certain matches start the fire and other ones sort of douse out. Who knows why? But this one has connected and it's reached people and it and it's not just people that it's reached it's reached corporations it's reached companies that didn't care about this whatsoever so you have this seminal movement and the fact that it is seminal is as surprising as all the things that have taken place since you know it's really interesting you said that because listen i'm a white guy and it really hasn't occurred to me Maybe this is, I hope this isn't saying something negative about me, but it really hasn't occurred to me to check in (laughs) my black friends on how they're doing. And you're not the first person to say that. I was listening to a podcast with George Raveling, 82 years old. What a great and incredible speaker he still is. He was on a podcast and he just said the same thing. Everybody's checking in with me. And then he said he did note some people that didn't check in with him. So... (laughs) I'm just saying that I want, I want your response to that. In on me. A, I kind of like that. <laughs> I mean, I had Peyton Manning surgery last year. I had more people checking in on me last week after George Floyd than when I got my neck cut open, which is a little bit of hyperbole because my people did show up. But still, the point remains is that I'm okay with that. I mean, I sort of feel like, and I'm certainly not judging, oh, well, you didn't look in on me because I didn't feel I needed to be looked in on. I'm not a pet. And yeah. I also didn't feel like anything, I didn't feel like this was some sort of seismic moment for me of introspection. And and in some ways, on the one hand, it's an interesting conversation. On the one hand, you sort of was like, okay, well, this is, this is sort of white America talking to itself, recognizing that what we've been saying all along is true. But then again, on the other hand, you don't want to be a jerk about it and be, and and be non-responsive to someone who's actually trying to be, show a little bit of humanity, I think it's a good thing that people are aware and it's a good thing that people hurt and it's a good thing that people are paying attention to something that 
that they find aberrant. I, I don't see anything wrong with any of these things. So, and I've also always taken the position that when someone's trying to apologize, if indeed that's what they're doing, the last thing you do is make them feel terrible for apologizing. If somebody yeah. says, hey, I messed up, the response is, I understand or I accept your apology. It's not, you sure did. <laughs> so it's, I, I think it's been good in a lot of ways, even though I think for me what I'm really saying is it's, it's been more bizarre than anything else. But once again, it's bizarre because nobody knows which match is going to start the fire. This is the one. Right. I mean, I'm going to steer this in a, in a while towards, I've obviously had you on before talking about Kaepernick and that, and the NFL and their response. But before we even get to that or even get to sports, what, what, I'm going to probe you a little bit on, on, again, what we talked about before the record button. What is the it? What is the it exactly beyond George Floyd that, that has set this off in your mind? I mean, I, just, I guess I'm just asking you, people have ideas about this or police or racism, but what do you, what do you describe as the it that has set the world off right now? Yeah, I think, I think the it, if I'm being as sort of clear and candid as, I, as, I, as I'm trying yeah. to be, um, I, I think the it is, is the sort of collective recognition that African Americans are really treated like dirt in this country mm. and that the smart, good people that you think, you know, that you haven't been listening to and that there's a, that there's an accumulation of sort of this perfect storm of looking at information and realizing that, that, we all say we're friends and we all say we're close and we all say we have the right values and, and such, but people haven't been listening. And, and that there are real life consequences to that. And the real life consequences are sort of watching a video in slow motion of a man get killed. And I was thinking about this. How many times do we get in our culture, do we get to watch people get killed? I mean, we've been at war for 20 straight years now, but we don't, they don't show war on television anymore. We don't even see, we don't see coffins being offloaded from planes anymore like you did during Vietnam. So even though we've been fighting two wars for 20 years and have a presence in several countries in the world, we don't see that level of death. But you do see it when it comes to this, when you see African-Americans being confronted by police or in those sort of confrontations you're actually witnessing death. And I think that resonates with people, even though the, the George Floyd murder was no more egregious than Eric Garner being choked to death and, or than Walter Scott being shot in the back by police in South Carolina. I don't think any of those are worse, but this one seemed to matter. And maybe it's a perfect storm. Maybe it's the fact that everybody's been in the house for 90 days, and it's the fact that We've had three and a half years of complete divisiveness, and after Charlottesville, and it's this sort of accumulation. I tend to think it might be something else as well. I think that it is the uh, the aftermath of the of the Floyd murder. The fact that it's taken so long. I think I think people who care about justice and who have who have a basic idea that freedom belongs to them, that they take freedom for granted, are like, well, okay, well. We watched this guy get killed. How come nobody got arrested? Why are there no charges? And I think yeah. the glibness of the DA in Minneapolis going, oh, yeah, it's a really sad case, but I, I see no crime here. 
I think that's the type of stuff after watching the Ahmed Arbery shooting in Georgia just a couple of weeks earlier. And it took several weeks for charges to be filed against those guys. So I do think it's sort of a perfect storm. And I think when you add one more thing to it in terms of aftermath, then you start watching the police wantonly firing pepper spray into a crowd of whites. It's not just Ferguson where it's a class issue. And I think you take you take all of those different components together, and then you see the National Guard pointing rifles at American citizens, and you realize you're involved in something that's a little bit bigger than than one confrontation with police. Yeah, I think that what you just said about treating African Americans as less than is just resonates. A couple things that really hit home to me this week, just talking to a friend, 55-year-old African-American doctor. And he just said to me, sort of matter-of-factly, yeah, I have a stop stop strategy. And I'm like, what do you mean a stop strategy? I have a stop strategy. That if it gets stopped by the police... If it gets stopped, here's what I'm going to do. Absolutely. We all do. And hands high on the wheel and as, as polite as possible. And, I mean... I go one step further, Andrew. I, when I, right <laughs> when I see the lights come on, I take my cell phone and I turn the audio recorder on, and just put the phone between my legs and just let so everybody can hear the. So it's going to be there's going to be some. He said that as well. Yeah. Of that confrontation, I just put that on there. Just let the phone run. Or if I get stopped, I immediately text some of my friends and I say I got stopped by police. I text them early before the guy gets out of his car. I start texting people, got pulled over. And the other part, the other thing that just resonated with me, and you're going to say that is so obvious, of course. And he said something about, you know, the famous video that happened a week before with the woman in Central Park that called police or (laughs) called whoever and said an African-American is about to attack, whatever she said. And Mm -hmm. she, of course, was universally ridiculed and fired and all that. But he said she leveraged her white privilege. She leveraged her white privilege. There was an understanding that because he was black, we need to take care of this. And it's, I know looking back, it sounds so simple, but I'd never heard it expressed like that. Oh, no question. And when you watch that video, the very first thing I said was, she's so good at this, this isn't even the first time she's done it. And usually when your life is in danger or you feel threatened and you call 911 or something, you don't mention the race of who's attacking you. You say, I'm being attacked. And then the dispatch will say, well, who's attacking you? And then you describe them. You don't describe them first. The only way you describe them first is if you know you're trying to get somebody in trouble. And you knew exactly what the response was going to be. And the brazenness of the entire Amy Cooper video was the demand that she be filmed. She told the guy, keep filming me. In other words, she was completely in the wrong and still felt completely confident that when police arrived, he was going to be the one to get it, whatever that was. She, I always view that. I looked at that video, and the first thing I said was, that's an attempted murder. Mm. Because she knew exactly what she was doing, and she knew that, just, that when they got there, they were not going to try to sort it out. They were going to immediately grab him and they were going to do something at some level to him. She knew exactly what she was doing. You know, it's interesting that what we have is is this outpouring 
of emotions, of support. And like you said, maybe it's the pandemic. Maybe this is just the, the, the matchstick on the tinderbox that's been waiting to explode for so long. But I guess, and again, last sort of question before we move to sports and the NFL is this energy, can it last? Will it last? Or will we, will we look back in a few months and say, yeah, that was, that was intense back then, but now we're back to where we were? Yeah. And that's the, that is the question. And I think that, I think that the difference to me at least is you've got a couple things that have happened immediately. One, I think responding to force with more force created even more gasoline. So I think that the white house response is actually making this an even bigger story that when you deploy corrections officers and prison guards onto American streets, you're not going to get the response you want from a people who are used to being free. I said this over and over again, you can do whatever you want to black people. You know, you can go into black neighborhoods and you can rough them up and you can shoot them and you can do whatever you want to do to us. But when you start pulling that with these young white kids who are out in the streets who are protesting and you run after them and you start hitting them and doing the things that we've seen happen across the country, you're going to get a totally different reaction because they believe in freedom and they believe that, hey, wait a minute, I, I belong to this culture. You can't do that to me. And they also have resources in a lot of ways. They have recourse. And so because you're starting to see that and it's so vivid and also everybody's been in the house and also a lot of people have lost their jobs during this pandemic. So there's a lot of anxiety here. Combining all that together now suddenly you're starting to see actual legislation that is discussing real police reform and real police reconsideration. I don't think there's going I don't think we're going back to this. I, I don't think that there's going to be a level of complacency here. If there is going to be some complacency at all, it's going to at the very least create a new baseline. I don't think people are going to go, oh yeah, th that moment lasted for a few weeks and then everybody went back to normal. I just right. don't see it going back because I think one also being in an election year all of this is going to have implications moving toward November. So I feel like the country's coming apart, and I think that when, you, when you've hit these types of moments, you don't just sort of reset. You're in the middle of a pandemic. You've got police going, you know, being supported on one side, but also being attacked on the other, um, you know, and a long overdue attacking of them because their culture has been so unaccountable. They deserve to be attacked by 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 legislators to say, look, you guys are out of control. And so I, I just don't, I have a hard time believing, I don't think it's going to be some sort of revolution because I think there's always going to be a retrenchment at some point, but I, I just don't see everybody going back to normal after this. Definitely true that we're learning. And the one thing I've learned so much that I never knew four weeks ago was the immunity that police have and their protections against what they do. I mean, Obviously, the officer at the heart of all this that put the neck, the knee on George Floyd and murdered him, this, this guy had 17 citations. Um, that, that's the other thing about the unaccountability. And then they show the guy in Florida who had 79 citations. And, the, you, and when you add that to the fact that it's taken forever for these DAs to even 
bring charges, and then you put Amy Klobuchar in the middle of that after running for president, and her record had had been out front and center on this and had been exposed. So that's what I mean about this perfect storm and that there's an accumulation. It's not the one thing. It really is not the one thing. I think that I, I think that people who believe, and that's part of the issue, that belief, how can this be happening if the system, if the system of policing and criminal justice is what I thought it was? So there's a sort of awakening here that people believed way too much. They believed in the words. And that's one of the things when I was working on this, on my last book, Full Dissidents, that came out in January. That was the point that I was trying to make. What are you going to do, Americans? when the words actually don't mean anything anymore, or when you see the words of democracy and freedom and liberty and all these things that we've placed as, as staples and pillars of our lives, what are you going to do when you start seeing them be flaunted at such a level? Um, for black people, we, we know that they're being flaunted because we're the victims of it being flaunted. But when, when white people wake up and go, wait a minute, the guy's got 79 citations. Why does he still have a job? When that level of discussion starts taking place, then you start to see changes. Help me understand, and maybe this is obviously not your expertise either, but the idea of defunding police. And I I think the the, the ignorant people like myself hear that, and my reaction has been, oh my God, well, well, what then? (laughs) And what about all these civilians showing up armed at these places? Can Can they run rampant? if we're defunding police, well, they're showing, what does that they're even They're showing mean? up armed anyway. I mean, that's the point about the entire... There are two issues about the defund movement. One, it suggests that police reform in its current form is actually working. It's not. And two, it suggests that defund means abolish, and it doesn't. They're two different words. Defund essentially means that you're reallocating resources and that you're not propping up this militarized state and this unaccountable state with dollars after dollars after dollars, that you're going to to create a different model. Nobody is saying, well, some people are saying it at the extreme level about abolishing the entire system of police. I think what you're really seeing is, and there is some level of abolition that's that's taking place, like I think Minneapolis schools the Minneapolis school system or school district um, decided to take police out of classrooms, out of elementary schools and public schools, which I have a, which I completely agree with. I mean, that sort of criminalizing is, it's just the class levels and the class implications of that are just terrible. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that this is what happens when we deal with words, right? When you hear the word defund immediately, you're thinking, okay, that means that there's no money for police and that police are no longer going to exist. That's not what the defund movement means. You know, what it means is that you're not going, to, that you're going to have more accountability. You're going to have less, you know, you're not going to get a blank check anymore. You don't, New York City does not need a $6 billion police budget. It doesn't. You know, and it really doesn't when you're considering you're paying out billions of dollars in police brutality settlements that aren't even coming out of that budget. It's coming out of taxpayer money. And so, you know, I think that what we're really talking about is reimagining what this entire industry looks like, or what this entire institution looks like, because they've been completely unaccountable. At no point have you heard anybody from a police union in the past couple of weeks or in the past few years, have you ever heard them take any responsibility for anything? 
they never say we need to do a better job. They never say we agree with some reforms. They all they they allow you to say, oh well, there's way more good cops than bad cops out there. But you don't hear the good cops say anything about reform either. You don't hear any of them say anything because they don't want to change. And so I think that the entire defund conversation is is a is an example. It's a result of a last resort. People have had enough of police getting away with everything. They don't take any responsibility. Yet I think there's a segment out there that, like you said, the defund, not that it's abolishment, but are we, and I'm not making it about race, but are we... You should make it about race. Are we safe with a defunded police? I guess that's... Well, it depends on... Well, and once again, and this is why you need to make it about race. Who is we? (laughs) Who are we? Who are we talking about? Because... At your current levels, we're not safe. And that's the whole thing. The presupposition is is that the system as is is safe for someone or keeps people safe, and it doesn't. The whole thing is broken. I've been watching this uh, documentary on Netflix, How to Fix a Drug Scandal. It's devastating, absolutely (laughs) devastating in terms of what has happened or what is the criminal justice system at all levels. It's completely, totally demolished, broken. And so to, to have the immediate reaction that doing anything to this current system is somehow making it worse, is yeah. it's a fear tactic, or it's just fear, period. And I understand that fear. Obviously, we all fear change, and the idea of defund means, oh, my God, there's going to be marauders. It's going to look like Gotham City or something. No, right. I think it needs a reimagining. And I think if you look at what, the, what Camden has done in New Jersey, you look at what they've done in terms of trying to reimagine police. I think that if you look at police, you know, policing around the world, if you look at the Netherlands or if you look at England, you look at some of these other places where the model of police and the philosophy of policing is very different. When I was working on my book two, weeks, two, two books ago, The Heritage, I talked to several defense attorneys, and they were telling me that it's not even an issue of, an issue of training, because they said when you really think about it, the training is actually very, very good. It's philosophy. It's that the officers, when they get into the field and they begin to have situations, they ignore the training because they don't want to appear less masculine, and there's an adrenaline there, and then there's an attitude there that has to change. But people say, oh, well, we need reform, we need better training. The defense people that I talk to actually say training is not the issue, that the training is actually quite good. It's really interesting because um, the reimagine word is really something that strikes you. It's it's almost like this whole COVID, you know, we've been home, as you said, for three months. It's like, you know, we can reimagine what work looks like. We can reimagine what the world looks like. We can reimagine a lot of things during this time. And here we are with policing and law enforcement. We can reimagine this. It looks like, you know, the positive side of all this. We can come out with some new beginnings. Well, exactly. And that's the whole thing. People talk about the return to sports. People talk about what everything's going to look like going back. In so many ways, you've got a clean slate or you have an opportunity for a clean slate. And that's something that you're very rarely, if ever, afforded when life keeps going on at the speed that it goes on. But now that you've got this correction, you've got this shutdown, there's an opportunity to start rethinking. And the reason why I've been completely engaged on the defund movement is simply because you can't tell me that what you've got right now works. It does not work. And you also can't tell me right now that it is appropriate 
in that it is good for a society to have your local police dressed like they're in Iraq. That mm. that ten you know the 1033 program where you are moving military grade equipment to local police forces. All of this does is escalate, and you can't feel. How can you say you're going to be a part of the community if you look like an occupying force? All of it has to be re-examined and all of it has to be reimagined because it's going in such a direction. And this is, and you and I have talked about this before, this is the legacy of 9-11. We, we talk about all of these different areas when we said that the world was going to change and it was never, ever going to be the same. This entire conversation we're having is part of it, that we're all in some ways paying for what happened that day. And we we go on and we live our lives and we, we keep it moving. And while we're doing that, we lose sight of all of these different incremental changes that suddenly have now become a template. I think about that when we think about just the, you know, the, the idea of war, that my son is 15 years old. He's never lived a day in his life without the United States being at war. And we've never been able to say that in our history. At some point, there was some form of peacetime. He cannot say that. You know, four years ago, it was four years ago, which is amazing. Colin Kaepernick first sat, and then, of course, he knelt. But he spoke in that locker room on that day in August 2016 that no one really remembers because it was really the only time he spoke about all this. And he said, I'm not, you know, I don't like what it stands for, the flag. And I like, and he talked about police brutality and racial inequity uh, with treatment by police. He talked about it right there. Yeah, he talked about it there, and he and also said something. The, the thing that I took most away from from that day was when he said that there there are police officers killing other people and getting paid vacations, right. and they are they're on paid leave, and when they lose their job, they get another job. This isn't right, and I think that when we're talking about this at the top of this conversation, what's changed? I think people have reached what I always refer to as that full dissidence moment. They have that moment where it's like, enough. Can't do this anymore. And everybody reaches their breaking point. And, and I think that, once again, this is that recorrection. At some point, there's going to be that market correction. And you, you can't, how many more videos are you going to watch? <laughs> and how many more times are we going to follow the same script? And how many more times are we going to be at the same place? Now, obviously... If you're African-American, you believe that we were going to be in this point in perpetuity because it wasn't affecting the majority of white people in a way that got them to action. But now suddenly you're seeing people in the street. And one of the things that I've considered as part of it is this delayed effect. If you were 18 years old in 2008 and the Obama-McCain election was your first election and you were an Obama person and you were some young white kid or black kid or whatever... Now you're 30 years old, and mm -hmm. whatever you believed, you, know, you really believed about the country that day, and it hasn't delivered. And maybe there's a part of you that feels betrayed and that feels like, wait a minute, I honestly believed when Barack Obama got elected that this was going to be the start of a post-racial society. And instead, how did we go from post-racial to Charlottesville? How did this happen? Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with how people are viewing their country. And on top of that... You've gone from that day in Grant Park where you everybody thought you had Jesse Jackson out there crying and you had everybody thinking that this was finally we could start to think about race and America as, as uh, you know, very differently. 
and instead you go to Charlottesville and you go to having the National Guard pointing weapons at you and police shooting rubber bullets at, at you. I think that that's the type of stuff where, as an American, and you believe in freedom, this is an enough moment for you. You're like, enough, can't do this anymore. And of course, Kaepernick hasn't played it down in three years, and now you have owners, commissioners, all these people, uh, not only in sports, but the NFL, of course, espousing the views he's talked about for so long. Yet even the statement that Roger Goodell made almost in shame because his original statement was so mealy-mouthed, when he well, came out almost, it looked Friday like a night, he, of course, had no reference to Kaepernick. Well, it was it was no reference to Kaepernick, and it was almost verbatim to what the players had demanded the day before. And I think that, once again, I think that you're dealing with two different issues here. One of the issues that you're dealing with is Roger Goodell as the commissioner who gets paid to to deal with these issues on behalf of the owners. He's the one who gets to be made to look like the bad guy. And I think he also tries to sell himself and media tries to paint him as the reasonable one over there on Park Avenue. Right. And, but my issue is, is that I need to hear from the four most powerful owners in the game. And you don't, I haven't heard from Jerry Jones. I haven't heard from the Roonies. I haven't heard from the mayors and I haven't heard from Bob Kraft. Nobody has come out and said, Colin Kaepernick is welcome to play football in the national football league. And until you hear that, and until until some of the owners come out and say he is welcome to play, the slate is clean, we were wrong, then this is the equivalent of putting, you know, giving a guy a death sentence and exonerating him with DNA and leaving him on death row. And so I don't believe any of that. I think that what the NFL is really doing is I think they're being proactive instead of retroactive. I think they're looking at that video that the players sent out last week and they're realizing that they've got two major problems. One is that you've got Deshaun Watson out there talking as a quarterback, and you've never, ever, ever had during this moment in the last four years, we all know that player power in the National Football League runs through the quarterback position, and Deshaun Watson is one of the biggest quarterbacks in the game. And the other one is Pat Mahomes, and he was on the video too. So now you've got a Super Bowl-winning quarterback who very well may be the best player in the league taking this issue up. That's what Roger Goodell was responding to. He wasn't responding to the hypocrisy of Colin Kaepernick being vindicated. As you mentioned, I tweeted out this morning, have we heard one owner, forget even those four you mentioned, one owner either support, endorse what Roger said, especially the part about we support peaceful protest. I mean, I know that Mark Murphy said some things, and there's people have tweeted at me that uh, McCaskey came on with, Manuel Acho, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, and we heard Ron Rivera say it, but we didn't hear Daniel Snyder say it. Right. And so, exactly right. And that's the that's the real issue. So what you're really seeing, I think, is you're seeing Roger Goodell, as he begins to recognize he's not going to be there forever, as he starts to see his exit strategy, he doesn't want his obit to say he was the, the hardliner on this. I also think they're recognizing, and the owners are going to recognize this a little bit later, clearly, but they're also recognizing that maybe Donald Trump isn't as strong as he was in 2017 and that he can't hurt them or they're tired of listening to him. And I think there's one other area, too, that sort of adds to the calculation. And that is there's not going to be anyone to boo. There are no fans. There are, right now, you don't have open stadiums. So when the games start, 
and yeah. the players take a knee or whatever. Are they going to be taking a knee in an empty stadium? So the dynamics are just so unknown right now. I think there's an opportunity for the players to sort of try to create some space for themselves about having a little bit of leverage. But also the the rules on the books prohibiting players from kneeling and such are are more strict than they were when Kaepernick was playing, and yet those are still in place as well. Do you think the lack of statements from ownership beyond whatever team statements they made are more about not don't I mean you just kind of debunked the idea of bumping up against the president or losing some part of their their fan base, their business base, or just some subtle feelings that they don't feel that way. Well, I, I think the I, I think that is the I think that's the real issue. I don't think they believe in this. And I think that they are being swept up in a corporate a level of corporate sort of national momentum that they don't subscribe to. I don't think there's any passion on their part. That's why you're not hearing from them. You're not hearing them take an interest in this because they don't care about this. They they are going to deal with whatever issue they feel is threatening them at this time. And if Patrick Mahomes and those young players didn't make that video, I don't think you'd hear the NFL say anything. So essentially you've got a chess match going on at a relatively high level in terms of what we can say, what we can't say, and I feel like they're also looking at it from the standpoint that it's good for the league to eventually move to this side because Trump is being isolated right now. It, at some point, he's not going to be the president of the United States. At some point, if the more you ride with him, the more exposed and, and dangerous it's going to be for you. And so I think that they're also making that sort of, that sort of calculated, educated guess about, look, we cannot stay on the side of this thing much longer especially you've got people in the streets taking knees. You've got every other sports league on board, and we're going to be completely isolated. Not a smart move to do that. You know, it's interesting you talk about had to respond to the player video. As you've read, as I'm sure we all have read, this, this employee or a couple of young employees of the NFL were the ones that – well, that's right. I mean, it's the NFL. Did that it's, with Michael Thomas because they didn't like what Goodell had put out earlier. Well, that's right. And, and that's the thing. It's like it's happening everywhere, and there's a certain level of momentum. When the current becomes that strong, you cannot fight that wave. And we talk about this all the time. Which hill do you want to die on? Which battles do you want to fight? Is this the one that you really want to fight when the entire world is against you? I mean, that is the point. I mean, there's, no, there's not a corporation in the United States, in my opinion, that has been more clear about how it felt about kneeling than the National Football League. Mm. They've, they, nobody has made their statement more obvious about what, how they feel about it, what they'll do to you, where they, where they stand. They've made it very, very, very clear. And so for them to even budge a little bit on this is proof to me, at least, that they're recognizing our position can't hold. You see the statements that Ben and Jerry's put out. You see the statements that, that 
all these corporations that Apple is putting out and that IBM is putting out. IBM is getting rid of facial recognition technology. Are you kidding me? IBM is one of the one of the sponsors of the NFL. And you know, I think that when you start connecting all these dots and peeling back all of these layers, they've got to be worried about their corporate partners. If their corporate partners are going to say to them, look, we got on board with this and you didn't, it's going to be more and more and more difficult for us to work with you. And so eventually you become completely isolated. And I think that the the role of the commissioner, I'm sure they're looking at Roger going, well, this is why we pay you $45 million a year. Go handle it. Take the bullets for us. That, well, that's right. And and there's no need for us to say anything. You speak for us. Jerry Jones has been very, very quiet on this. Bob Kraft has been quiet. Oh. Snyder's been Not of them have said anything. Which may make sense. It's better to say nothing. Emory doesn't want to talk to him except for now. Yeah. What do you think of other sports? Uh, You know, we have sports starting up again. What's been so interesting is usually in moments like this, 9-11 or the Boston Marathon, I mean, you have these sports events that come on the heels of it and galvanize and this, this, this coming together and this feeling. But now there's no sports. And uh, sports will resume in Orlando with the NBA, but it's like, okay, you know, is that going to be a galvanizing moment? No, because there are no people. So the problem is with this pandemic is that sports is sports lane throughout the history of crisis has always been to be the healer that the healing came from everybody being able to normalize life by going back to the stadium and looking at each other and, high-fiving and doing all that. This is not that. This is science fiction. This is a pandemic. And so now you've got to decide, okay, what is our lane? I think sports did serve a certain purpose in that nobody really took this seriously until two things happened. One, Tom Cruise tested positive in Australia, and then the next day the NBA canceled the season. You mean Tom <laughs> then Hanks. people began to pay close attention. Indian Wells had actually canceled at the tennis tournament before the NBA did, but that was tennis, and people people accused them of overreacting. And but when the NBA said no, we're shutting it down, then that told you how important sports was. So sports does serve a purpose in that people listen, people pay attention to what these leagues do. But the traditional role of sports being the healer is not going to happen here, because. I don't even know how how do people feel about this? Do you want to go back to a stadium? Do you feel comfortable sitting with 50,000 of your closest friends? I don't. Yeah. I know the movies, I think the movie theaters in California are opening up this weekend. I don't know if I want to sit in a room of 50 people, never mind 50,000. So sports is going to have to find a new lane for itself instead of the traditional roles of being the healer during 9-11 or the Boston Marathon or the Gulf War or whatever. Have you had any reaction, and I'm just trying to think for myself, beyond NFL owners, NFL commissioner, to the other sports? I know, you know, Rob Manfred's been tied up in negotiations, which are just fascinating to me that if baseball doesn't happen this year, it's not going to be due to the pandemic. It's going to be due to money. Um, it's really interesting, you know, the way that other sports are just trying to make it through right now. And it's like, they don't want to deal with this, you know, this, this racial thing. They're just trying to get it, get their sport going. Well, that's the dual effect, right? And so you're dealing with 
the pandemic, I took my son to a rally. He wanted to go, so he actually took me because I wasn't going to let him go without me. And we go to this rally, and you've got a 1,000 people surrounding the police station here in my lovely town of Northampton, Massachusetts. Yeah. And there's a thought that is hitting me while this is all happening. I'm like, aren't we in the middle of a pandemic right now? And that was only a 1,000 people, and it seemed completely reckless. So absolutely, when the, the, the sports industry, you can't just say, okay, we're back. You've got to say, okay, we're back. And then you've got to let the people decide. You've got to look and see who's willing to come out and play. You can, you can declare tomorrow that the stadiums are open. It doesn't mean anyone's going to the game. And, so, and then you're also looking at it now, and you're seeing that the post-Memorial Day COVID spikes in, I think it's either 12 or 19 states. And it's incredible. So... I was talking to a friend of mine who is an emergency room surgeon, and she was telling me that, that part of the strategy that people have in the medical field is that they know that the shutdown is coming, that the shutdown is going to resume sometime in mid-October, mm. and that a lot of people just want to get out and be normal for, a, for the next several weeks until that hits, because if you miss this window, you might be shut down again until February or March. It's funny we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about the it you know of course being what's what's happened with race in this country and policing, but we also realize we've got a pandemic to deal with. So, no, I mean, exactly. do you see, are you seeing these as interrelated somehow beyond, of course, the the frustration that everyone's had being at home the three months? Yeah, of course they're interrelated because you're dealing with two things that are affecting, and especially when you started to look at the. When you looked at the the numbers of who yeah. was being affected when the pandemic first hit in the first several weeks, and you started the the data began to reveal that that African American poor disproportionately being affected, and once that started happening, all of a sudden you had a lot of people coming out saying, "Okay, well if that's not me, let's come out and play. I'm ready to go." And so that was problematic right. because it it suggested, okay, that if it that we're willing to sacrifice some people and other people if they're not affected then they want then they want to resume with their lives. And these things do break down along racial lines. There's sort of no escaping that. So yeah, there's a lot of interconnectivity there. I, I feel like when I've talked about it feeling like the world is coming apart, it it the country is coming apart and the pandemic has a lot to do with that as well. And when you're starting to look at the leadership response, um, it is very difficult to not see all of these things intertwine in terms of the certain breakdowns. Like we're looking at the New York Times pieces and the Washington Post pieces about how the Minneapolis police force has been erect for several years despite all the warning signs. And let's not forget, Minneapolis police killed Philando Castile in 2016. And then you start looking at the stories about how the unpreparedness of the United States during COVID, and you're looking at it going, who are we right now? It feels like a complete, like a moment for total introspection, that we're not what we thought we were. And that's why I always say when people say we're going back, you know, when are we going to get back to normal? Not only are we not going back to normal, but we probably shouldn't. Use that word earlier, reimagine, and and I guess I want to bring us back as we as we land this plane to where we started in terms of lasting impact. 
you know, let me, let me put your, your, uh, crystal ball ahead. So here we are, you know, these protests have died down, will die down. Coverage will die down at some point. Where are we going to be, you know, uh, in your opinion, and I'm not talking about health and pandemic right now. I'm just talking about where we're going to be with policing, with race, with this quote unquote movement in three, six, nine months. Well, I think it's going to be a real interesting question. If you look at, if you look at what has taken place in Georgia yesterday in terms of the disaster of voting, if you look at what has happened, we don't even know when the conventions are going to be. We don't know any of this. The, the yeah. entire democracy right now feels like it's in complete chaos. There's a great deal of conversation about what this election cycle is going to look like, never mind what it's going to produce. The most important thing that I see right now, when I say, okay, well, when do you want to look ahead? I want to know what's going to happen on Election Day. I think that's the most important thing because not because of who wins or who loses necessarily, but was there a process? So when we talk about this country coming apart and the real fear of the country coming apart, it's because the wheels are coming off. If you can't actively vote with confidence, then it's over. If you still have corrections officers roaming the streets trying to enforce whatever it is that they're supposed to enforce then this whole thing, where you, it's over. You can't have, what are you going to have? How long is the National Guard going to be walking around Washington, D.C. or in other cities? So to me, what I really want to see is piece by piece. I want to see some form of belief in, your, in the structures that people have told us to believe in. And voting is absolutely number one on the list. Because if we go to another election where votes aren't being counted, where the legitimacy of the, of the election are being, is being questioned, then that's going to be three elections in the, since 2000. You had an, a question of illegitimacy in 2000. You had a question of illegitimacy to a lesser extent, but still in 2004. You had a question of legitimacy in terms of Russian interference in 2016. And now you're going to have it again in, in 2020. And that's four out of the last six election cycles where you've had massive, massive questions about the legitimacy of your of your campaigns. And if that's the case, this is the first step to the end of a republic, of a democracy at least. I mean, what are the things that we talk about when we look at foreign policy and we're looking at all these third world countries? You're talking about the legitimacy of your elections. If that's happening to us, we're in huge, huge trouble. You mentioned earlier, and we'll leave it after this politics question, you mentioned Trump being somewhat isolated. It seems to me he can do no wrong with his base, no matter what he does. So the question becomes, what will knock him out if he has his base loyal to, to a fault? So what can change? Well, it depends on who comes out. It depends on your numbers. I mean, how many people voted in the last election? You had 120, what, 128 million votes, 129 million votes, 65 on one, 66 on one side and 63 on the other. It depends on what those numbers are. And it depends on if he can still count on 60 million votes, it's anybody's game. How do you handicap it? 
Oh, I, I like I said, I I have no idea. I mean, I I have a hard time believing. On the one hand, that he survives this, nobody should survive this. Nobody. I mean, the levels well, I, of chaos. Nobody should. I agree with nobody should. But the levels of unemployment, the levels of uncertainty, the levels of unrest. Nobody survives this. On the other hand, when I say the the country is falling apart, maybe the country's falling apart. If he survives this, then I have a hard time believing that we're going to be to recognize what we see in the United States in November. Howard, you're a thoughtful, insightful, informative voice as always. Always enjoy having you on the podcast. A true repeat guest on the business of sports. <laughs> Thanks for being with me. No, my pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Howard Bryant. Again, couldn't think of a better person to talk about it. Hope it leaves you with some thoughts that you'll be thinking about. Now, Word, I'm thrilled to announce our partnership with DraftKings. You know them as the leader in daily fantasy. What you may not know is they've launched America's top-rated sportsbook app. DraftKings brought their expertise to the legal sports betting market. It's a legitimate sportsbook race based right here in the U.S. And your funds are going to be secure. This weekend, golf is back. You can get into that. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app. Use the code ROSS, R-O-S-S, all caps, when you sign up. All new users can get a sign-up bonus of $1,000. That's right. DraftKings Sportsbook has a sign-up bonus of $1,000. If you enter that code ROSS, all caps, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for following me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt. Apple Podcast rankings and comments are appreciated. Thanks to my producer extraordinaire, Brian Neal. Music underscoring the Patreon music, as well as under music by Sam Brandt, my son. And Patreon, please follow, sign up, get exclusive content, more access to me, give you more access and content. I'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Angie's List is now Angie, your home for everything home. Angie still has the same top pros and reviews you've counted on for more than 20 years. Only now, you'll also get access to all the tools you need to make your home a happy place. Inside, outside, big or small, Angie helps you find the right solution for whatever you need done, all from your phone. It's simple to find upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. You can even search pricing guides to see what others paid for similar jobs and easily compare quotes from top local pros to make sure you're getting a fair price. From lawn care to repairing the AC to the project of your dreams, Angie has your home projects handled from start to finish. Plus, when you book and pay through Angie, they'll cover your project up to the full purchase price plus limited damage protection with their happiness guarantee. Make your home an Angie home. Check out Angie.com today. And for more on the happiness guarantee, go to Angie.com forward slash happiness hyphen guarantee dot htm.